My next interview is with Dennis, who went from being an engineer in America to eventually being a journalist based in Japan, writing for the Science Magazine. Welcome to the Are We Home Yet podcast, where we talk to expats about what it's like living abroad, and they tell their stories, whether it's the struggles, the joys, falling in love, raising a family, managing a business in another country, and maybe still searching for that place they will one day call home. This is a place where you can listen, the guest and host will share, and maybe we'll all learn from these stories that we're all connected in what home means to each of us. I'm your host, Jalila Clark. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back. So today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dennis. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Well, things are going along. Life is pretty good. Okay, good, good, good. So where do you currently live and how long have you lived there? I'm currently in Tokyo, Japan. And I've been here since 1986. Okay. And so what's it like living there? Like the food, the people, the culture? Well, Tokyo, even more so than when I first came, is is very cosmopolitan. Uh, so in terms of the food, you can get anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the, uh, the sushi is great, reasonable, depending on where you go. But you, really, you can get uh, any kind of cuisine that you are interested in. The culture is also, I think, very comfortable for people coming from other countries. Uh, particularly in Tokyo, it, as I said, it's very cosmopolitan. I suppose I had culture shock when I first came. There are a lot of subtle differences. I think um, many people coming to Japan, one of the first things that strikes them is that there's still a uh, very high level of public politeness. There's, There's rushing to and fro and the trains are phenomenally crowded, but there's still a level of uh, formality and politeness in everyday discourse that that I think um, surprises some people and maybe is a bit different from what they are used to. In one point, my younger brother was living in Hong Kong and he would enjoy coming from Hong Kong to Tokyo because he said everybody was so polite. Whereas I would enjoy going from Tokyo to Hong Kong because Everybody was so exuberant. Mm-hmm. I've, I've found people to be very friendly. There is a, perhaps a level of formality. And it's tough if you don't speak Japanese. There are people who speak English, but it's, it's difficult to form friendships with Japanese if you're not speaking Japanese. Okay. All right. So then how many countries have you lived in is is this the only one different from where you're from and and where did you originally like relocate from like what's your original homeland i'm originally from the philadelphia area Mm -hmm. uh i grew up in just outside the city limits and i went to school at uh, villanova which is also in the suburbs of philadelphia Mm -hmm. and uh, then i lived within philadelphia for a number of years I bought a home in the Germantown section of Philadelphia for people who know Philly. 
And uh, then I realized that uh, I had spent my whole life in Philadelphia and I decided to go and see the world. <laughs> and so first I moved from Philadelphia to Anchorage, Alaska. And one reason I chose Alaska at that, at that time, I was really into outdoor activities, hiking, canoeing, and uh, there's a lot of great outdoor stuff you can do in, in Alaska, if you don't mind the cold, and I don't. And uh, that was just part of a plan to go from uh, Philadelphia to Alaska. Then I thought of uh, Japan and maybe Australia. Mm -hmm. And I thought at some point I would eventually make my way back to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But uh, I moved from uh, Alaska to Japan in 86. And um, after I came to Japan, I, I broke into journalism. Mm -hmm. And I really found my, my calling and just did more of it. And part of, my, uh, part of my stock and trade became a knowledge of Asia and ability, ability to function in Asia. And so I've stayed in Japan uh, and have been a journalist ever since. Except in 2015, I moved to Shanghai. Uh, my magazine wanted someone in China because so much was happening. And I was quite happy to go. Mm -hmm. And so I was in Shanghai from 2015 until January, a year ago, January 2021. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came back to Tokyo. The, uh, the pandemic made, made things difficult. And getting uh, working as a journalist in China became more difficult. So I'm back in Tokyo. Okay. Can I ask, like, what, what made it difficult? Partly, the, the pandemic made travel difficult. Actually, even though I was based in Shanghai, I was splitting my time between Shanghai and Tokyo. Mm -hmm. uh, for most of the time I was in Shanghai, my family is here in, in Tokyo. And that became increasingly problematic because I had to was supposed to quarantine coming and going mm -hmm. so even a quick trip one way or the other involved two weeks of quarantine in Shanghai and two weeks of quarantine in Tokyo so that made it very difficult also particularly trying to report on the pandemic was very difficult in China I went to Wuhan I had scheduled interviews at one of the universities to talk to scientists who had written some of the early papers about the, uh, the COVID outbreak in that city. And at the last minute, all of the interviews were canceled. Mm. And we think that uh, someone high up at the university decided at the last minute that uh, it wasn't a good idea for their scientists to be talking to a foreign reporter. So that kind of thing made it difficult to do really good reporting in China. And so, I mean, it sounds like you write about science. Are you a freelancer? Do you work for a specific company? I write for a magazine called Science. Oh, okay, okay, lovely. <laughs> and so, I mean, how long have you been writing for this magazine? Uh, since the mid-1990s. 
Okay. And I know you mentioned before that, you know, you know, you love the outdoors and stuff. Was that what kind of inspired you to write about science for this science magazine or, or was it something else that led to writing for this magazine and about science? I sort of not really stumbled into journalism, uh, but uh, my background is uh, civil engineering. Mm-hmm. And I worked as a structural engineer in Philadelphia and in Anchorage. When I first came to Japan, I was teaching English to the employees of Japanese construction companies who were going to overseas construction sites. So I was still using the uh, vocabulary specific to engineering and construction. I had always been interested in writing, had done some writing, some casual essays, I guess you would call them, uh, even when I was back in Philadelphia and then in Anchorage, and continued doing that, contributing just you know, casual essays about daily life in Tokyo to uh, some local English language outlets and some American uh, newspapers and magazines. So by this time, it was the late 1980s, early 1990s, and there was tremendous interest in Japan's high-tech stuff. Uh, the audio equipment, the Walkman, the uh, cars, it seemed like uh, Japan was, was really on a roll. And at, at that time, Japan also started ramping up spending on basic research. And with just a bit of a engineering background, I found that I, it gave me sort of an in reporting on high-tech developments. And then I worked my way into covering more basic research. And so I I transitioned from engineering and uh, teaching into being a journalist full-time. Let's cut to a quick commercial break. Enjoying the podcast? Then support the podcast. Click here to donate in the show notes and keep the cool interviews with guests from around the world going. Check out the blog for handy information about living abroad and buy the ebook, a great guidebook for moving abroad. Find the blog and ebook at the website, arewehomeyetpodcast.com. Again, that's arewehomeyetpodcast.com. You can also donate on the website by scrolling all the way to the bottom and finding the donate button. All right, back to the show now. And the only time that it's been hard being a journalist was recently, or have there been other times when it's been hard to report on scientific matter? I wouldn't say it's hard. It's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. I think probably no matter where you are, there are people who don't want to talk to journalists. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find other people to talk to. You have to find some way around that to get the uh, to get the information that you think you need for a story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's part of the challenge of being a journalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that it was difficult, like you know, 
going back and forth, China and Japan. So, you know, since you've been in Japan for a while, since, you know, not returning back to China, like what's your day-to-day like at work and then when you're away from work, your downtime? Well, both here in Tokyo and in Shanghai, I've worked out of a home office. Mm-hmm. I work out of a home office now. So my work day to day is I get up, I check emails from my editors who are on the East Coast or Europe. And uh, I sit down and I skim the news. I send out emails. I exchange emails with sources, do Zoom interviews, and occasionally uh, go out for some on-site reporting. So I, I mean, it sounds very routine. It is very routine. That's that's my daily work day, mm-hmm. and I'm usually answering emails or talking to editors, um, you know, in the evening before I, before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. So it's a long day. Downtime, I really enjoy live music. Uh, so and there's a lot of live music in Tokyo. There was also a lot of live music in China and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So that was one big uh, sort of away from work pursuit. Beyond that, uh, my wife and I um, enjoy eating out. Mm-hmm. Before the pandemic, I was uh, going to a gym, both uh, here in Tokyo and in Shanghai. I've stepped away from the gym um, because, of, because of COVID, but I still try to keep active and try to keep fit. And so, you know, actually a question that I forgot to ask you, when you initially moved over in 1986, like, I mean, what, what was the visa process like? And, you know, like, I mean, how many foreigners did you interact with? Was, was it many that you saw or just a few at that time? There were much fewer then than now. Mm -hmm. Although I, I think the numbers of foreigners in Japan has trended downward, particularly uh, because, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I came, when I came to Japan, I already had a contract with an English language school in Tokyo and that provided the visa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, not really difficult to get. It was just, you know, you had to get the contract from the the employer and I had to get all my documents and go to the consulate in Anchorage, Alaska and get the visa. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was not difficult. It was just sort of time consuming. Mm. Uh, And I've just uh, renewed my visa. And now I've got somewhere along the way, I finally got permanent residency. So I'm a permanent resident in Japan. Mm -hmm. Getting the visa to go to China was a bit more challenging mm-hmm. there, there was just a lot of back and forth with a division at the ministry of foreign affairs to get uh, an invitation to come to china as a journalist and i had to go for an interview at the chinese embassy here in tokyo mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of routine again it wasn't really difficult it was just time consuming and all the back and forth took a long time uh, so when I got my journalist visa, I started the process of getting the journalist visa to go to China 
I think in uh, January 2015, and I finally managed to get the visa and get to Shanghai in July of that year. So it was a it was quite protracted process. Okay, so then when you first moved over and there were, you know, fewer foreigners, like I mean, how did you make friends, like with foreigners, with locals? What what did you do to to meet others? Well, at first, um, the group, this language school, employed you know several dozen teachers. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, you know, the basis for one circle of friends. Uh, I also uh, fell in with a hiking group. There was a uh, mm. people, you know, mapped out day hikes, and they're actually Tokyo is phenomenally crowded, but um, you can take a train to the outskirts of the city, get off the train, and start hiking. Uh, and it's it's kind of convenient in that sense. And so. Um, and this hiking group was, it was mostly foreigners, but there were, you know, a number of Japanese as well. And that formed, um, you know, the basis for a, for a good circle of friends, quite a number of whom I'm still in touch with. Later on, as I got into uh, journalism, uh, a lot of my social activities centered around the Foreign Correspondence Club of Japan, which is here in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And I got very involved in the club. And uh, I was still interested in uh, live music and made some friends that way. And later on, after I sort of um, drifted away from the hiking group, I took up tennis and got involved with a tennis group, which actually sprang out of uh, a coffee shop, which is across, which was across the street from, from my apartment at that time. Mm-hmm. The master of the coffee shop said, oh, we've got a bunch of people want to start a little tennis circle. And I had never played tennis. And so they let me start playing with them, even though they were all much better than I was. And that uh, that continued until I left for Shanghai. And that was really good. It was uh, I was the only foreigner in this group. And it was we played every weekend. And uh, that was a bit source of, uh, you know, some some friendships, and I'm still in touch with those people. Mm-hmm. I'm still a little bit, you know, curious and fascinated that you know you ended up becoming a journalist from teaching English to you know these uh, employees. So I mean, how how did you find that first job teaching English to those employees? And, you know, then to transition to being a journalist, had you done like interviewing, investigating, writing, you know, of this nature before? Were you ever worried about the transition? Not exactly worried. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe worried about whether uh, whether I would make a decent living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as I said, I had been sort of dabbling in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when I was back in Philadelphia, I was contributing these little essays to uh, a weekly, it was sort of a, an alternative weekly newspaper mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And then when I moved to um, Anchorage, there too, strictly on a, a freelance basis, I was uh, contributing 
little articles, brief, mostly brief articles to um, uh, to an Anchorage newspaper. So, for example, I took a, um, a sled dog trip when I was in Alaska, and I wrote about that uh, for the Christian Science Monitor. Mm. So that involved not only getting out there and doing something, but then uh, you know doing some background research into uh, why uh, dog sledding is uh, is a thing in in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So when you write a travel piece, you not only need to give your own personal experience, but give some background for the reader to understand. You know more about the, the topic, more about the locale, and uh, another piece I did while I was in Alaska, um, I interviewed the, uh, the park ranger at uh, Denali National Park, who was in charge of uh, treks going up Mount McKinley or Denali, as they call it, the, the, the tallest mountain in North America. Mm-hmm. And what happened when uh, mountain climbers got into trouble? How they had to get military aircraft from the, uh, the U.S. Air Force Base, which is up there in, in Alaska. Wow. Quite an operation. And this uh, this ranger was in charge of coordinating between the uh, mountain climbers and the rescuers. Uh, and it was quite, a, quite an operation. And he had some, some stories about uh, the challenges involved in that. Mm-hmm. So I sort of eased into journalism step by step. And then, as I said, when I came to Tokyo, I did uh, some, you know, just sort of what's what daily life was like in, in Tokyo, uh, both for local English language publications and for American publications. One thing which everybody gets used to if you live in Japan is bowing. Uh, you don't shake hands when you meet somebody, you bow. Mm-hmm. And this becomes so ingrained that when you thank somebody, you bow, you say hello, you bow, that this sounds strange, but you actually find yourself bowing when you're speaking to somebody on the phone. <laughs> okay. And I wrote a little essay about uh, bowing on the telephone, you know, mm-hmm. how this, this had just become ingrained and that, that uh, proved pretty popular. It appeared in the Christian Science Monitor. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing those. And then I realized that there was a lot more interest in, uh, in Japan's uh, technological developments. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote, uh, because my my background in construction and engineering. Uh, I first started writing for some trade magazines, in US trade magazines aimed at the construction industry. Mm-hmm. And then more general high technology stuff for magazine Popular Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started going to press conferences and then started uh, contacting companies to ask about um, you know their products if I could get demonstrations of products that were just being released mm-hmm. at that time a lot of products that were headed for the US market were first released in Japan mm-hmm. and so I would try them out and write up a 
little explanation of uh, this new gadget, what it was going to do. And uh, that was often before the product had been released in the United States. And that was, uh, you know, so that was more on the technological side. But then um, Japan started putting more investment into basic research and trying to strengthen its uh, university-based research. And somehow I made a connection with Science Magazine and they were very interested in expanding their coverage of what was happening in Japan because Japan was an increasingly important scientific power globally. And so I just did more and more of it. So it was kind of a step-by-step -step transition, uh, went on over several years and uh, finally science put me on a, a full-time contract, which is what I've had more or less ever since. Okay, what's been your favorite article to write and why? Or article, I, if you can't limit it to article. just one. <laughs> you, you know, the uh, famous novelist, James Michener, mm -hmm. He never took notes when he was doing his research for his novels. Mm -hmm. He kept it all in his head. He memorized everything and he never took notes. But then he said that as soon as he finished the novel, sent the last page proofs off to the, the publishing house, he said he would forget the whole thing. He would forget everything he had learned. All of the background information he needed to write that novel. And I'm kind of the same way. Once I finish a story, I, I rely on notes, by the way. I don't memorize all that. Mm -hmm. But once I finish a story, I, I pretty much forget it and move on to what's next. Oh. So when, uh, when you ask what's my favorite story, I really have to stop and think about what I've done that's, that I've found particularly interesting and fun. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the great things uh, writing for Popular Science was I got to test drive new automobiles oh nice which was a lot of fun for science one article i remember pretty well um soon after i went to shanghai china completed uh, the world's largest radio astronomy dish mm -hmm. and it's it's huge it's about one and a half times the size of the dish that was in Arecibo, Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. which collapsed a couple of years ago. You know, radio astronomy, you're getting very faint radio signals from, from distant celestial objects. And they have these massive dishes. This was like uh, the one built in China is like one and a half football fields across. Mm. And they built this basically in a in an area where the geological formations formed sort of a natural basin, hmm. and they just filled up that basin with this uh, radio dish, which is uh, you know sheets of I, I guess it's an aluminum-like metal that catch the radio waves and bounce them off to a to a, a signal collector. And just getting to this remote location involved uh, an all-day trip. I forget where I had to fly to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but then um, I got picked up at the airport and it was, uh, you know, another half a day car trip through very rural areas of uh, southwestern China to get to the site of this enormous instrument. And it's just awesome. Mm -hmm. When you walk into the valley, it, it's just awesome. You can't imagine something this big being built to uh, collect radio signals from outer space. Mm -hmm. So that was that was interesting. It was a lot of fun. And the, the, the dish is just phenomenal. And it's doing some groundbreaking observations. What else has been uh, particularly interesting? Oh, uh, covering uh, earthquakes. This this is it's a challenge. I, I hate to say it's fun because you're you're covering what are really tragedies, but it's uh, it's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my early assignments, there was an earthquake in the Philippines. And it particularly impacted the village of Baguio, which is, I guess, north of Manila, up in the mountains. And I flew down to uh, Manila and managed to hitch a ride with uh, a geologist I knew from here in uh, Japan, a Philippine geologist. And we went up to look at uh, what had happened to the buildings in Baguio. It was it was really intense. Mm. I slept out in, in a cabin at some uh, resort in Baguio, and had to make my way back to Manila the next day. And it was it was challenging. Yeah. And then several years later, there was an earthquake uh, here in Japan in Kobe, and I went down to cover that. And there again, it was hard to get into the city. I managed to connect with another group of uh, scientists who, who arranged to get a boat because all the public transportation was down and highways were blocked. I uh, managed to hitch a ride with a, a bunch of scientists uh, on a boat that went from Osaka to Kobe. And then we were on our own and uh, I Wandered around and looked at uh, uh, collapsed buildings. And this is one point in which uh, my engineering background came into play uh, because I was a structural engineer and I could look at the damaged buildings. And because of my background, I had a pretty good guess as to what happened, to what went wrong with that building, what led to the collapse. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the third big disaster was, of course, the uh, tsunami, the earthquake of uh, just uh, it's now 11 years ago. Yeah. In north, uh, northeast Japan. And uh, I did not go to the damage area immediately. I went uh, several weeks later. Uh, I covered it remotely and uh, called on um, geologists that I had been in contact with over the years. It just so happened that one of the most prominent geologists in the world is a Japanese American. And just by chance, he happened to be here in Tokyo at the time of that earthquake. Wow. And somebody told me he's here, he's here. 
and I was able to track him down. And the, the night of the earthquake, I went down to his hotel and he had all these charts and maps and we sat down in the lobby and he showed me where the earthquake epicenter was and why it caused the damage it did. And tsunami, I was able to get a story out of that and wrote uh, quite a few stories about the earthquake and the tsunami. And then of course the, uh, the meltdowns at the nuclear power plant. Uh, so that was all memorable. As I said, covering covering a tragedy is a challenge, and it's interesting. And uh, you never forget that uh, lives are involved, which is yeah. kind of a bitter aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And you know, so initially, how long had you planned on staying in Japan? And I know you mentioned <laughs> you have a family, so you know. Um, did you end up marrying, you know, a local, like, so a Japanese woman, or was this also another expat? And, you know, then after marriage, then at some point, did you think, oh, well, we could relocate or, or this is fine. Let's just stay here. Well, yes, my wife is Japanese. Uh, she was a reporter. That's how we met mm -hmm. reporting. And so, yeah, let me back up. I had, I, I, Originally, I had this uh, naive idea in my head of working my way around the world, but uh, I found my journalism job so rewarding, mm -hmm. I pretty much just stayed here. Reporting for science, I've traveled uh, throughout East Asia. I've been to South Korea several times, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Taiwan, Australia. I think I'm forgetting some. Did I say Thailand and China? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been traveling to China before I moved there. So that, uh, that sort of relieved some of my wanderlust and uh, just sort of settled into this career and traveled through Asia. And uh, then when I moved to Shanghai, my wife stayed here. She has her own career. Mm -hmm. And so she stayed here. And that's why I was traveling back and forth regularly between Shanghai and Tokyo, mm -hmm. which was a blast. I mean, these, these are two of the most dynamic cities on earth. So going back and forth was quite a, quite a bit of fun. So you've been together for a long time, but would you say, were there any struggles besides obviously joys in being involved with someone from, from a different culture? I mean, in some ways, it's a challenge. There are cultural differences, but I I never found it particularly difficult. It um, it has made life probably a lot more interesting. Yeah. Now I can have a conversation in Japanese on just about any topic. Although if you get into politics, I have to brush up my vocabulary, and that's something that. Uh, I wouldn't have achieved had I not lived here for so long and, and not had a Japanese partner. So is it difficult? Um, I, I guess it is, but uh, you know, you take it as a challenge and it's more interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so segueing struggles and joys, but now let's ask, you know, what have been the struggles and joys of being an expat? Struggles. Again, I think of it as challenges and mm -hmm you know, being able to function in a different culture mm -hmm. 
getting used to bowing instead of shaking hands. I mean, that sounds trivial. It's <laughs> trivial at one level, but that's just representative of, you know, deeper things. So I've, I haven't thought of it as uh, struggles. You know, I've thought of it as challenges. Being an expat in Japan is, uh, well, certainly in Tokyo. As I said, Tokyo is, is very cosmopolitan. Um, I've just gotten used to being here. I certainly suffered culture shock when I first came. I can't remember specifics, but I remember thinking, oh, why can't they do it the way the Americans do it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now I wonder, I go to America, I wonder why can't they do it the way the Japanese do it? Um, <laughs> you know, you've probably wondered, I'm not sure where, you, where you're from. Mm -hmm. Miami. Uh, Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I go back to Philadelphia and visit New York and uh, wonder why can't the Amer America do public transport the way the Japanese do it? Mm -hmm. Why can't they keep the city as clean <laughs> as the Japanese keep Tokyo? Mm -hmm. So there, there's been that, being an expat in Tokyo, uh, at some point it becomes just not such a big deal. We've lived in the same neighborhood for uh, 20 years. And you know, I say hi to my neighbors and uh, we're regulars at some of the restaurants and bars and uh, we're just part of the crowd. There are little things that come up from time to time that remind you that you are an expat. And one was um, trying to find a new apartment. Mm -hmm. There were some realtors which won't deal with foreigners and some landlords who won't deal with foreigners either. In some ways, I, th I think it's a valuable lesson for, for especially white Americans to be in a situation where they are a minority. Mm. And I think it has given me heightened appreciation of the challenges that people of color face in the United States. Oh, okay. And so, so I'm just going to ask you like one last question. You know, you mentioned you've been in your neighborhood for 20 years. Wow. So then, you know, what's your definition of home? And now is this your forever home? I, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, I feel that I can settle in pretty much anywhere. I felt very settled in uh, in Shanghai, mm -hmm. you know, I was friendly with people in the building. Mm -hmm. I was friendly with the guys at the front gate. Um, there were a number of restaurants uh, in that area where I was a regular customer and got along with the staff and the owners and the other regulars. And so that's, that's sort of the feeling of home. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling of being at home. And I settled into that in, in Shanghai and uh, I've certainly settled into that here in Tokyo. I, I still dream of maybe retiring to Philadelphia mm -hmm. and uh, going back and uh, reestablishing that as home. But whether that's going to happen or not, um, I don't know. I'm still working, still intend to keep working. Mm -hmm. At the moment, uh, home is where I am. Okay, okay. 
All right. Well, thank you, Dennis, for taking the time to be interviewed by me on this podcast, Are We Home Yet? A podcast where we talk to expats about what it's like living abroad and maybe inspire future expats to also live abroad and and have interesting experiences. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye to all of our listeners as well as Dennis. I hope you have a great day. Thanks. I enjoyed chatting. Tune in for my interview with Richard, an educator and filmmaker who raised two children in China, and soon after they left the nest to study in America, he relocated to Japan to continue living his best life. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to hit subscribe, and to stay updated, head over to AreWeHomeYetPodcast.com. I'm Jalila Clark. See you next time.